So I wanted to uh, start by asking you a question. It's there at the top of my sermon outline at the first point. The question is, uh, how much do you think it matters that God is both fair and forgiving? Uh, maybe you believe God exists, maybe you don't. I'm not sure, but if God does exist, how much do you think it matters that he is both fair and forgiving? Because I, I think basically everyone's persuaded uh, about the importance that God should be forgiving. That matters a whole lot. You may not have thought about it, but uh, for example, the 18th century empress, Catherine of Russia, uh, she said this, she said, I shall be an autocrat, that is my trade, and the good Lord will forgive me, that is his. You know, so yeah, we've, we've all got our different roles in the universe, I'll do whatever I like and God will forgive me. Uh, our job descriptions are clear. Uh, along similar lines, the poet W.H. Alden says, I like to commit crimes and God likes to forgive them. Really, the world is admirably, admirably arranged. And now, of course, those uh, uh, quotes are a little bit looking at the funny side of this, aren't they? The lighter side. Uh, but more seriously, I think we see the importance of God being a forgiving God at basically every funeral you've ever been to. Every graveside you've ever stood at. In the wake of someone uh, dying, people draw great comfort from the fact, well, sure, mum or dad or my friend or my work colleague or whoever it was, sure, they weren't perfect. But I'm confident that if there is a God, he would have forgiven them. And now they're watching over me in heaven. You know that sentiment. I think we're all persuaded that uh, it matters a whole lot that God is forgiving that God would love people and welcome people into heaven, into eternal life. But, but uh, does it also matter that God is fair? How much does that matter? Oh, I, I think it matters a lot too. All of us have this innate desire for justice to be done, don't we? See, with my children, they're playing, mum and dad come into adjudicated dispute. It's not fair! You know, injustice! I listened to some talkback radio the other night after the Geelong West Coast uh, final. You know, the, the talkback radio that the callers get on. Uh, we were robbed. You, did you see that decision? The umpire didn't adjudicate properly. It's a massive injustice. It's not fair. You see it if people are interviewed outside law courts. That sentence is just outrageous. That, that person's committed all these horrible crimes that they're getting off practically scot-free. All of, us, uh, all of us have this deep longing for human adjudicators, judges, whether they be parents or umpires or teachers, whoever they might be, we have this deep longing that they wouldn't just forgive people for doing wrong, they would punish people for doing wrong. That's what a good judge does. Human judges should be just and righteous and fair and all the more so with the God of all humanity. He should not just be forgiving but fair. You should not just forgive people who've done wrong, but punish people who've done wrong. I mean, that raises attention, doesn't it? If God is fair, how's he supposed to forgive people who've done wrong? How do those two things fit together? How can God relate to people who've done wrong, sinful people, in a way that is both fair and forgiving at the same time? How does that happen? Well, that's the question that Paul's answering in this passage. Sometimes you, we might read this passage and think this passage is about me. No, 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 not quite. It's actually about God. 
It's about how God can be both fair and forgiving. And Paul picks up this importance of God being both fair and forgiving by repeatedly using that phrase, the righteousness of God. It's used four or five times in the passage. What does that term mean, the righteousness of God? In the Bible, it can be used in roughly three different ways. Different but related ways. The first way is that it can refer to an attribute of God. Uh, That is to say that God is righteous. It's who he is. But it can also refer to an activity of God. Because God is righteous, he always acts righteously. Uh, But then third, uh, it can refer to a a particular status that is given by God. Because God is righteous, he acts righteously in declaring people to be right with him. Understand? Because God is righteous, attribute, he acts righteous, activity, by declaring people to be right with him, status. And in today's passage, Paul's uh, using the righteousness of God to refer mainly to those second and third uses. And uh, the question is, how can God make, uh, make people right with him? How can God give people the status of being forgiven and accepted by him in such a way that he is righteous? That's the question. How can God be both fair and forgiving? And Paul answers that question by saying that God can only do this in the gospel, the good news of what he's done for us in Christ. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because those verses are really a parallel uh, to uh, chapter 3, verse 21. And if you look at uh, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, uh, you'll see there that the Paul uh, basically says that the gospel is so powerful because in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is made known. It's only in the gospel, this wonderful news of what God's done for us in Christ, uh, that God fully puts on display his righteousness. And that, he show, that is, he shows how we can relate to sinful people like you and me in such a way that he's both fair and forgiving. So let's have a look at this righteousness of God and how it's revealed in the gospel. Look in verse 21. Uh, We see in verse 21 what I've called the the witnesses of the righteousness of God or the kind of revealers of the righteousness of God. I was trying to find a word, but there you go. Verse 21. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. But now, Paul says. Some people have said that uh, this, this passage... Is, most, is the most important passage in the book of Romans. And many people have said that the book of Romans is the most important, most influential book in the whole Bible. And lots of people have said that the Bible is the most important book in the whole world, you see. And these words, so really we're in a very significant territory with these words, but now this is the turning point, not just of the book of Romans, but all of human history. Because from chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20, Paul has shown that all of humanity is sinful, all of humanity deserves to be judged by God. But now, Paul says, in the gospel, in the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, God has done something new. He's done something wonderful, something amazing. He's revealed the right, his, uh, his full righteousness. But Paul wants to be clear, how is it that this revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel relates to what's happened in the past, the Old Testament? Uh, So on the one hand, he says, well, it's a bit disconnected. It's apart from the law. You see that? 
Uh, the law there probably refers uh, to the whole old covenant, right? the whole system that God set up uh, so that his people, so he set it up through Moses so that his sinful people could be in relationship with him. And here Paul is saying, but now God has set up a new system. In Christ, he's created a whole new way for sinful people around the world to be in right relationship with him. So on the one hand, this righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is a bit disconnected from the Old Testament. It's something new. It's apart from the law. But on the other hand, it really is connected. You see what Paul says, the law and the prophets testify to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to this. So even though God set up something new in Christ, a new way for people to be in right relationship with him, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, did hint at this. They testified to it. They pointed towards it. They pointed towards this new and wonderful way. So that's the witnesses of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God was witnessed to in the Old Testament, hinted at, pointed at, shadows and whatever else. But in the Gospel, it's been fully made known. So what about the recipients of the righteousness of God? Who is it that can receive this righteous status before God? Well, Paul says, verse 22, This righteousness uh, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, if you look at verse 22 there, and I, I didn't include the, the footnotes in the, in the Connect card, but if you've got a Bible, you'll, you'll see that there's a footnote, uh, and that's because verse 22 uh, could be translated as either uh, the righteousness of God is given uh, through the faithfulness of Jesus or through faith in Jesus. Right? Through the faithfulness of Jesus or through faith in Jesus. And I actually think through the faithfulness of Jesus is better here. Right? Paul's saying that the God is able to make us right with him, to, to forgive us and restore our relationship with him uh, because of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because isn't it true that if all of us are really honest, if we take a good hard look at ourselves, we'll all admit that we're not righteous. Yeah, we, we talked a bit about this last week. We, we might be better than the next person. We, we might be able to pump ourselves up a bit because there's someone worse than us. But none of us is faithful to God and all his commands all the time. We are not righteous. But here Paul's saying that, that Jesus was. So it's by his perfect faithfulness. It's by the fact that he lived the life that we can never live in our place and then he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. It's by his perfect faithfulness all the way to the cross that we can be made right with God. And you see there in this verse, Paul says this righteousness given through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to all who believe in him. Now, that's not saying all who believe Jesus existed. Right here, he's saying with this word belief, all who depend on Christ, all who lean on Christ alone, all who put their confidence in Christ alone. If God asks the question, why are you right with me? Why should I let you into heaven? You say, but Christ is my only hope. I believe on him. I lean on him. My confidence is in him. And you might say, why do I need to put my trust in Christ? Well, look what Paul says. 
He says, because there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. No, no matter who you are, he's saying, the reality is you've sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. I've fallen short of the glory of God. It really means we, we've forfeited the glory of God. We, we lack the glory of God. And there's something missing from every human being apart from Christ. Uh, Psalm 8 verse 5 says, God made human beings just a little bit lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. That's how God created us, to to be the crowning glory uh, of his creation. Uh, To be a little bit like a mirror uh, that that kind of uh, reflects and shares in the glory of the sun, if you hold it up. That's what human beings are supposed to be like. We're supposed to reflect the glory of God, to share in the glory of God. I mean, if you remember in Romans 1 verse 23, Paul said that in our sin, we've exchanged the glory of God, right? God, our glorious creator, we've traded in the glory of God for the pseudo-glories of the false gods in this world. And so instead of worshipping and serving our glorious creator God, uh, we worship and serve things like money or sex or power or comfort or status in this world. The, the false gods of this world, the, the promises a whole lot and end up delivering nothing. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying because of our rebellion and sin, all of us have lost the glory that God created us to have. We've fallen short of that glory. There's something missing from our lives. Not because we're victims, but because we've sinned and turned away from the uh, the glorious God who made us. So all of us need to be right with God so we can once again reflect the glory that he intended for us to have. So the recipients of this righteousness from God are absolutely anyone and everyone, no matter who you are. You need to be made right with God. You can be made right with God simply through faith in the Lord Jesus. Which brings us to the source of the righteousness of God. Well, Where is it that this righteousness from God comes from? Verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There's so much in these verses, but really there are three key words that explain how the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, is the source of the righteousness of God, the source of how people can be made right with God. The three words, uh, once again, three words that I'm sure you hear all the time, are three words, justified, redemption, and propitiation, uh, which in ours is translated as sacrifice of atonement. Right? Justified, redemption, propitiation. Uh, So first, justified. Paul says, All who believe in Jesus are justified. It's the language of a court of law, isn't it? That's where we are when Paul uses this word. And Paul's saying that everyone who believes in Jesus, when they appear before God as judge, will hear the declaration from God that they are justified. You are right with me, what God will say. You are innocent. You are blameless. There's no issues between me and you. They're all sorted. You owe me nothing. You are right with me. All of that's kind of wrapped up in this idea of being justified before God. And notice what Paul says there. He says, this verdict from God of being justified is not a reward 
for moral or religious performance. Well, that's what we think, isn't it? If anyone gets into God's good books, it's going to be because they worked really hard. They were a very, very, very good person. But what does Paul say? He says this a gift of being, this uh, just uh, being justified before God is offered freely by God's grace, a free gift held out by God, and all you've got to do is receive it. And God even gives you the faith to receive it. What a wonderful, generous God! And you say, but that's too good to be true. Don't you think that? I mean, we all think that if we're going to be in God's good books, if we're going to be justified before him, it's going to involve all sorts of sacrifice and service and obedience. It's going to be incredibly costly. Incredibly costly to, to be right with God. And in a sense, you're right, aren't you? You're right, but because even though this is a free gift for us, uh, verse 24 makes it clear that it's incredibly costly for Christ. God, God didn't shirk the cost. It's just that we don't have to pay the cost. And that on the cross, Christ died the death of a sinner. Christ was declared guilty before God. And so that by faith in him, we can be justified before God. We, we can be declared innocent before God. And so this wonderful free gift to us, because Christ has paid the, uh, the price in his death on the cross. And that's the first word, justified. The second word is redemption. You see, Paul says this uh, legal uh, status of being justified before God, how is it achieved? Well, it's achieved through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So justified takes us to the law court. Redemption takes us to the marketplace. And the, I say the marketplace because in Paul's day, if you went down to the local marketplace, uh, there would have been a whole lot of slaves in the marketplace. And if you were a particularly well-off person, maybe a generous benefactor or something, you could walk along and you could ask the slave owner, uh, how much is the redemption price for this slave? Oh, I want to set this slave free. How, how, much, how much is it going to cost? Uh, and they would tell you, you could pay the redemption price uh, and the slave would be free. Uh, and Paul's saying here that that's what happened at the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the price to set us free free from our slavery to sin. Because last week in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, Paul made the case that it not only is every human being sinful, you know, we do, uh, sure we're not perfect, we, we do sinful things every now and then, everyone knows that, right? But, but Paul made the case, not only are we sinful, but, but we're enslaved to sin. We, we, we just can't stop sinning, uh, no matter how hard we try. Uh, but God uh, knows that, and in Christ, uh, he pays the full cost to redeem us, to set us free from our slavery to sin. Uh, what is that cost? Well, third, that brings us to the third word, uh, which is sacrifice of atonement, propitiation. So justified is the law court, redemption is the marketplace, propitiation is the language of a temple. Look there in verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Uh, if you've been journeying with us through Romans, or if you know the book of Romans, you, you might remember that uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that the wrath of God, uh, the, the, the horrible, righteous anger of God, is being revealed against the sinfulness of all humanity. 
And of course in the Old Testament the Jewish people uh, would present their sacrifices of atonement, that their propitiation sacrifices uh, in the tabernacle or, or the temple, uh, they'd offer up a, a bull or a goat or a sheep uh, and they would be assured that God's anger had been turned aside from them because of that sacrifice. But of course we all know that a farm animal can't really represent a human being. It's not really a fair swap, is it? You know, I know I've sinned and I deserve to be judged by God, but this bull is going to stand in for me. No, what we need is a human representative. So in verse 25, Paul tells us God presented Christ as the ultimate sacrifice of atonement, the ultimate propitiation. God presented his son, his son who was fully God and fully man, to bear the fullness of his wrath in our place that we might know the fullness of his love and grace and mercy. And now some people get, are really kind of weirded out by that or they're troubled by it. I think, well, this is a bit wacky, isn't it? God presents his son as a sacrifice. So it gives his son on the cross. Surely that's some sort of cosmic child abuse. It's a bit of a messed up God. I don't know if I want a bar of that God. Right, but that, that's not actually true. It's not actually what's happening, is it? It's not like Jesus is some innocent third party that has got kind of grabbed and God's chucked on the cross. That's not what's going on. Jesus, as God's son, is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity in flesh. So in Christ's death on the cross, it's not like God inflicting punishment on someone else, but it's God himself willingly absorbing the, the fullness of his anger against humanity's sin into himself like a sponge, right, absorbing it into himself, uh, that we might know the fullness of his forgiveness and mercy. And that's how relationships work, isn't it? If there's uh, an issue between my wife, Gabby, and I, I I've got a choice. Well, I can, I can choose to take my anger out on her, or I can choose to absorb that anger into myself and offer forgiveness. Absorbing that anger is a cost. What happens at the cross? God has the choice. God chooses lovingly, willingly, in Christ to absorb the anger into himself that he might offer us love and grace and forgiveness. And so the source of this righteousness of God is the death of Christ in our place on the cross, his death as our substitute. And which brings us to the proof, the proof of the righteousness of God. Why is it ultimately that God sent his son Christ to die in our place on the cross? We usually think that it's about us. It's so that we can be right with him. But look what Paul says in verse 25. God did this to demonstrate, to, to prove his righteousness. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, verse 26, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Right, so Jesus' death on the cross uh, is not primarily about us. It's primarily about God, you see. It's about God establishing irrefutable proof of his righteousness, demonstrating that once and for all that he is right to make sinful people like us right with him, that he is fair to forgive. That's what the cross is about. Well, why is this an issue? Paul says, uh, because in his forbearance, that's in his patience, in his kind of divine tolerance, 
God had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Paul's pointing out that before Jesus' death on the cross, are those who put their faith in God's promises all through the Old Testament, let's say King David, for example, uh, those people's sins hadn't really been punished. And yet they'd been forgiven and declared right with God. So what's the deal? How is God being just and fair to, to simply forgive the sins of someone like King David who committed murder, who was an adulterer? Surely God should punish that sort of sin. Does God play favourites? Is God a corrupt judge? Well, no, Paul says. Because the death of Christ proves once and for all that God is fair. He is just. He is righteous to forgive sinners like King David, to forgive sinners like us. Why? Because when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're united with him. You are in him. So that his death on the cross becomes your death. So by faith in him, God fully punished King David's sin and my sin and your sin, if you put your faith in Christ, uh, in the death of Christ on the cross. That's what Paul's saying. So having punished our sins in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has shown himself, uh, shown that it is right for for him to declare us right with him. He's demonstrated that it is fair for him to forgive us. So what are the implications of all this? Uh, In the life of someone who's a Christian, of someone who's received this righteousness from God, uh, try to be brief in verses 27 to 31. Three implications. Uh, The first implication in verses 27 and 28 uh, is that amongst Christians, there shouldn't be any boasting. You see, that's what Paul says. Their boasting uh, is excluded. Christians should be the, the most humble people on the planet. If you've read uh, Romans 1.18 to 3 verse 20, uh, you'll see that several times Paul's pointed out uh, that sinful humanity apart from Christ are full of boasting. We're puffed up with ourselves in all sorts of ways, but in particular because in answering the question, what makes you confident that God would accept you? In answering that question, uh, our answer always revolves around who we are and what we have done. Well, why should God accept you? Well, I go to church and I got baptised and I know my Bible and I did this Westminster Confession class when I was in, you know, I went through PYV camps. I'm I'm the real deal. I was born into this family. My dad's a pastor. My mum's a missionary. Our answer revolves around who we are and what we've done. We boast in ourselves before God. But Paul says Christians are different because Christians know that they're not right with God by what Paul calls here the law of works which is about who we are and what we've done, Uh, but we're right with God because of the law of faith, which is about who Christ is and what he has done. So as Paul says in Ephesians 2, if Christians are going to boast in anything, they'll boast in Christ. All boasting is excluded except boasting in Christ. Now that's important. Christians do have a reputation for being very proud and arrogant and boastful, don't we? That's the the bad rap that we've got. Uh, And if that's the case, if that's what a professing Christian is like, then then let me suggest it's because they haven't really understood this gospel very deeply. If you understand that you're right with God uh, by a free gift, it's grace alone. If you understand that you're right with God, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that God has done, 
uh, then you certainly won't think very highly of yourself. You'll be a very humble person. Boasting is excluded, Paul says. Uh, The second implication uh, is that Christians will be very inclusive people. Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Uh, Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Uh, Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised uh, through the same faith. Now Paul knows that uh, he's a Jew. He knows the Jews are incredibly proud to be God's chosen special people. Uh, They have all the privileges of being God's people. Uh, But somehow in the midst of that, uh, the Jews have forgotten that their God is also the God of the whole world. Uh, They've forgotten that from the time of Abraham, God's intention was never just to save them, but to save people from every nation, to save people uh, from the whole world. And Paul knows that the Jewish people in his day, perhaps in particular, uh, had become really quite exclusive and discriminatory, thinking, sure, God will save us, but not others. Uh, But Paul says Christians should be different. Uh, There's a sense in which Christians should be radically inclusive. In the sense that we understand that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, or what uh, gender you are, what race you are, what socioeconomic class you are, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be right with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that everyone needs, but because our God is not just a little God of Christians, but the God of the whole world. Uh, so this is a radically inclusive faith, the Christian faith. A Christian should be very humble, very inclusive, and finally, they should be uh, very purposeful, I'm saying. Verse 31. Uh, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, once again, the Jews, they had great pride in the the God, the God of Israel was their God, right? They had great pride in that. They also took great pride in the fact that they had God's law given through Moses, and the Gentiles didn't. So Paul knows that that, uh, when he insists that people can be made right with God simply by trusting in Jesus, not by works of the law, he knows that some Jews are going to think that he's ditching the law, that he's nullifying the law, as he says here. And Paul says, not at all. Not at all. We uphold the law. In what sense does he uphold the law? He upholds the law because he understands that in the Old Testament law, going all the way back to Abraham, the Old Testament law was always about people being made right with God by faith in his promises. And we'll hear more about this in in Romans chapter 4 next week. So what does this mean? Well, it means that people who become Christians, who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, should have a real sense of, a real sense of purpose in their life because they know that in putting their faith in Christ, they're becoming a part of something way bigger than they could have ever imagined. When you put your faith in Christ, you become a member of God's family that stretches all the way back to Abraham. You're kind of caught up in God's wonderful saving purposes in his world. So that gives you a great sense that you're a part of something, a part of something, a part of God's great story of saving a people for himself. The story of how God is committed from the very beginning, from, from Abraham onwards to making a sinful people like us right with him in such a way that demonstrates his righteousness. Uh, The story that shows us uh, that God is committed uh, to uh, demonstrating uh, that he is fair to forgive. 
And so how important is it that God is both fair and forgiving? Uh, I think it's critical. It taps into the deepest longings of our hearts. Uh, that people would be forgiven and have eternal life. That, that all wrongs would be righted. And in this passage we see that it's at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that God demonstrates once and for all that he is indeed uh, both fair and forgiving. Let me pray. Uh, Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, I pray that uh, everything that I've said that has been helpful uh, would take root in people's hearts and minds by the power uh, of your spirit. And everything that I've said that has been unhelpful would be uh, left to the side. I pray, Father, that we would be blown away by how at the cross of Christ uh, you have shown yourself uh, to be both fair and forgiving. Uh, you've shown that, it was, it, uh, that you have acted righteously uh, to make sinful people like us right with you through faith in Christ. Uh, in whose name we pray. Amen.